our holy God, as we prepare to sit under your preached word, Lord, we pray that you would give our pastor power in, in his words, that he would preach your word, God, that, that your word would be planted in our hearts. God, that you would use that to edify your people and to draw sinners to yourself. God, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for the lost among us, that you would cast the cares of the world aside for us, Lord, that we would be able to focus on the preaching of your word. We thank you for this time that we share in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. We took a, a brief break for a couple of weeks to take a look at the incarnation of our Lord, and then last week uh, meditated together upon a reflection on the new year. But we're coming back to our regular, our regularly scheduled programming, back to our study in the Gospel of Mark. And you know, as we've worked through the first five chapters, we have seen Mark present to us Jesus of Nazareth as the Son of God. From the very first verse, and you've heard me say this again and again and again already, from the very first verse of Mark's Gospel, he is eager, he is zealous to communicate to us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And, and we've seen that. In a, in, a, in a sense, through the Scriptures, we have witnessed with our own eyes his words and works, the performing of miracles, the healing of many, the casting out of demons, even a demon named Legion, because we are many, he said. The healing of a, of a woman with an issue of blood. For 12 years, this woman had been in physical and emotional misery. And with a touch, she was healed. What we're going to begin, begin to see as we, in a sense, turn a corner in the ministry of our Lord, we're going to see an, an emerging and growing theme of division. A growing theme of division, of separation. And in Mark's gospel, this is going to become more and more prominent. And what we find is this division, this separation, even comes to the hometown of our Lord Jesus. The place where he was raised, the place where he grew up, is the scene of our text today. In just a moment, I'm going to read Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and that's the scene. This is his childhood home. We looked two weeks ago at the incarnation of our Lord, that he is truly man. He came and he, he assumed to himself our human flesh. He was born into a family. We're going to find that in the text today, he had at least, at least six Siblings. So he grew up in a family with all of its difficulties and struggles. He grew up in an ordinary place, a very small town. And what we're going to discover is that those who knew him the longest are the ones who actually vividly illustrate the fact that unbelief is the default position of mankind. In fact, what we're going to discover throughout the rest of Mark's gospel is that almost all of Israel rejects her Messiah. Almost all of the nation of Israel rejects the long-awaited Messiah. And in a sense, 
the scene that we're going to observe today in Jesus' hometown is kind of like a, a microcosm of that. Here in, in a compact form, a smaller group of people, one backwater town in the midst of the nation and those closest to him utterly rejected him and his message of reconciliation to God. The defining reality, saints, in our world, despite what we see and what we're kind of bombarded with all the time, the defining reality in this world is not political affiliation. It is not ethnicity. It is not socioeconomic status. It is not social status. It is not your family of origin. It is not your education level. It's not where you're from. It's not what you do for a living. The defining reality in this world is this. Do you believe the works and words of Jesus of Nazareth, or do you reject him? That's the defining reality. Do you believe the words and works of Jesus of Nazareth, or do you reject him? This is the central issue that this text puts before us, and it's an issue that has eternal implications. Belief or unbelief. Faith or rejection. There is no, there is never a middle way or a third option. Belief or unbelief. Faith or rejection. I'm going to read the text from the sacred scriptures, verses 1 through 6 of Mark chapter 6. But I want you to notice something as I'm reading. I'm going to outline the text in, in, in three ways. It, it, it sort of outlines itself, in my, in my understanding of it, along three couplets or three pairs. There are two things that were obvious to the crowd about Jesus. There were two things that caused the crowd to stumble. And there were two responses from the crowd. So two, two, and two. Two things obvious to Jesus. Two things which caused the crowd to stumble. And two things, two responses to Jesus from his hometown. So let's hear together the word of God. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went up about among the villages teaching. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice in the first place two things which were obvious to the crowd. Two things about Jesus Christ which were obvious to them. His words and his works. His words and his works. Now, no doubt they would already have heard about his teaching, about his miracles. Some were probably present 
perhaps at the Sermon on the Mount or other places in which he taught. We know for a fact that in Luke chapter 4, there's a record of Jesus already having been to this very same place, to the very same synagogue, and there he taught out of Isaiah 53. And he, after he read the scroll about a suffering servant, he closed up the scroll and he said to them, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So they weren't, they weren't oblivious. They weren't without understanding. They were not without knowledge as to what he has taught and what he has done. And if you'll recall, that episode recorded for us in Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, do you remember how those of the synagogue responded then to him saying, this has been fulfilled in your hearing? It took hold of him, and we're about to throw him off a cliff. They took it very seriously. They were angry. And yet Jesus comes back. He comes and, and speaks to them again. And Mark's gospel begins in chapter 6 with Jesus goes away from there. He's, we've been seeing him going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. And he's gone away from there, and he came back to his hometown, back to Nazareth. And then on the Sabbath, he goes into their synagogue. This would have been a small synagogue. It was a small town. And he teaches them. They knew his words. They knew his works. And Mark tells us that some who were sick in Nazareth were healed. So they had, to be, they had an opportunity to be an eyewitness, at least in small scale, to his power of healing. They could not deny the origin. They knew Jesus, and I'll say, this, say a little bit more about this in just a moment. He grew up there. For most of 30 years, these were people who were familiar to him, and they to him. They knew him. They worked with him. They knew his, apparently they knew his brothers and his sisters and his mother. They know. We do not. They knew what happened to his father, Joseph, who's likely dead by now. They understood that the words and the works of Jesus cannot be merely human power or authority. They, they knew that. He's already been accused at this point by doing these mighty works by the power of Beelzebul. You remember that? Because his opponents knew that his mere humanity could not explain all that he said and all that he did. He taught not like the scribes, not like the Pharisees. He taught as one who had an authority that was original to himself, and it was astonishing to the crowd. That is the initial response recorded by Mark in verse 2. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom of given to him, how are such mighty works done by his hand? It was unmistakable, the words and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this should be, these first couple of verses in chapter 6 ought to be a prelude. They ought to be the beginning of a narrative that celebrates how all the town of Nazareth believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and how all were reconciled to God through him. But that isn't the case. That's not how the story went. This should have been 
the, the heartwarming story of an entire village embracing their Messiah and Lord, who happened to be a son and a brother and a neighbor and a friend. But they rejected him. It was not so. The scripture tells us they rejected Jesus. They told the words and works of Jesus were so obvious and so clear as to leave them utterly, completely without excuse. And yet, rather than believing in him, rather than believing in him, our text tells us they took offense. They became angry. So notice here in the second place, these two things that caused them to stumble. There were two things that were obvious, his words and his works, undeniable. And yet they stumbled. Why? What were the things over which they stumbled? What should have been the warm embrace of the homegrown prophet is actually the most bitter and personal kind of rejection. They weren't rejecting simply what he taught. They did reject that, but they were rejecting who he is, his person. They were offended. <clears throat> Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? You almost, as you read it, you have, to, you have to hear a tone of mocking, of derision. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us, and they took offense at him. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand that the word that's translated here as took offense, it's the Greek word skandalizo. You hear that? You hear the English word scandal? Scandalize? They were scandalized. They were offended by him. Now, what was the source of this? What was the source of their being scandalized, being offended by his words and works? Well, we have the evidence in their questions. Is this not the carpenter? This is just an ordinary, unlearned man. This is not a man who's educated in the finest establishments. I mean, we're all here from the same place. We're all from Nazareth, a town, by the way, that's probably 500 to 1,500 residents. This was a backwater, we would call it flyover country now. Middle of nowhere. Not a significant place. Later on, people would ask, has anything good ever come from Nazareth? It was a, can I use the term? It was a hick town an out-of-the-way place that nobody respected, even the people who lived there. It was remote, it was small, it was uneducated. Everyone knows everyone. You know the phrase, there's no secrets in a small town. Some of you know that very well. Everyone went to the same church, everyone did business together. Half the town's probably related. And they look at him, and they look at his words and their works, and they say, is this not the carpenter? This is the one who works with his hands. As a side note, some of the pictures that we see of Jesus is one of the many, many reasons that second commandment violations ought to be avoided and taken seriously. But we have these images of Jesus, and it's, it's always this soft, almost effeminate. Our Lord Jesus was not like that. He was a rugged man. If you shook his hand, you would probably be impressed by the calluses on them. 
And in this, in his own life, didn't he sanctify good, honest, hard work? See, we live in a culture that wants to, to, to magnify and, and, and elevate the kind of white-collar sort of vocation and demean and minimize the blue-collar, the guys who work with their hands, the ladies who work with their hands. Our Savior dignified this kind of work. The one who made all things took on the form of a man who happened to be a builder of things, a carpenter. Notice the other questions that they ask. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Now, if you're, you've probably already noticed throughout the scriptures, there are patterns when people are identified, and they're often identified by the name of their father. So, for example, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon of Jonah, or from Jonah, son of Jonah. Why do you think they say the son of Mary? Well, it's not a nice thing that they've changed the term. They don't say son of Joseph. They say son of Mary. They're calling into question his legitimacy. They're calling into question his heritage, his parentage. So, not only is he from our small, hick town, not only is he an uneducated carpenter, but let's be honest, there's some questions about his family. How could that explain the words and works that we are observing? Is he not the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, who, by the way, were thoroughly ordinary, unremarkable men? He's their brother. How could he be anything special? Here's his two sisters, at least two, because it's plural, maybe more, but at least two. They were apparently very ordinary women from a very ordinary place, and Jesus is one of them, so how could he be more than that? The source of their rejection, twofold, familiarity and pride familiarity, and pride. Two things that they noticed unmistakably about Jesus, his words and works, the two things that caused them to stumble, their own familiarity toward him and with him and their own pride. Think about the privileges that the people of Nazareth had with respect to Jesus. For 30 years, they had had the opportunity to observe his perfect life. He was an ordinary man. He grew up as an ordinary boy and yet not so ordinary. He was sinless. In all his dealings as a carpenter, not once had he ever cheated anyone. Not once had he ever cut a corner in his work. Not once. Eh, that was kind of a pun, wasn't it? Probably did cut a corner in his work, but not that kind. <clears throat> not once had he ever defrauded someone. Not once had he ever, with not one young woman in that whole village, acted inappropriately. Not once had he disobeyed his parents. Not once had he been disrespectful. Not once had his own person been a cause of an offense to someone. We can't even imagine that, can we? And yet he goes back, and they mock him. They deride him. And so his very exceptionally ordinary background, they couldn't 
they just couldn't get past that to explain the authority and the works that they observed. And so rather than looking to God for an explanation, rather than searching their own scriptures for an explanation to this, they went to name-calling. Their belief was aggressive, or their unbelief was aggressive and willful. They were not lacking in information, were they? They were not, they were not missing some puzzle piece. They were with, not, not without faithful explanations from Christ and from the Word of God to explain the words and works that they were observing. Listen to John Calvin. He says, Why do they not rather lift their eyes to heaven and learn that what exceeds human reason must have come from God? We see then that it is not mere ignorance that hinders men, but that of their own accord they search after grounds of offense to prevent them from following the path to which God invites. We ought rather to argue in the opposite way, that when human means fail, the power of God is clearly revealed to us and ought to receive undivided praise. See, I think he's exactly right. I think Calvin is exactly right. Men search out excuses not to believe. And most of you probably, in your own dealings with coworkers, family members, people that you know, people you've prayed for, people that you, you long to see them come to faith in Christ, and you see the stubbornness, you see the obstinacy, you, you see, the, the, frankly, the silly things they come up with rather than believing. Rather than putting their trust in the claims of the Scripture, in the claims of Christ for who He is and what He's done, they come up with all kinds of, frankly, foolish things. They look to reasons, they look for reasons to be offended so that their own consciences can be falsely soothed from believing God's word. And so these very people who should have expected their Messiah to come from among them because that's what their Bible said, they've been foretold that there would be a mediator coming. In fact, they're renowned and beloved mediator of the Old Covenant. Moses himself told them this. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Beginning in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Now, how many times in all of Scripture do you think the Lord says about his people, they're right? I'll clue you in. This is the only time. But he says, you're right. You cannot, without a mediator, stand before me and not perish. You're right about that. So I will raise up Moses to intercede for you. And Moses said, will be another prophet like me. So the, the passage of Deuteronomy goes on, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command them, and, whatever, and whoever will not listen to my words that they shall speak, or that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Their own 
unbelief condemns them, does it not? Their own scriptures tell them that the prophet would come from among them, that he would speak words and do works that they could not imagine. That prophet has come. He stands before them and they look at him with derision. They look at him in mocking. They look at him with offense and say, how could it be him? He's too much like us. Now the one who fulfills the very prophecy of Moses, the one who is the better Moses, raised up among his brothers, it is this one, this Jesus, who is rejected by his hometown and even his own household. The rejection was because of their familiarity. It was because of their pride. Over and over again, we see these phrases, is this, is not this the carpenter? Is not this the son of Mary? Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? Is this not the brother of these two sisters? And they took offense. The people found fault that Jesus is like us. He's nothing special. He's only a man. This is, but isn't this the glory of the incarnation, saints, that Jesus became one of us? Like the scriptures tell us, with respect to his, his person, with respect to his, his likeness, there was nothing remarkable about him. It wasn't like Saul, who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. It wasn't like David, who was ruddy and beautiful in appearance. Jesus was ordinary in terms of his outward features. But it was, it was the familiarity and pride that caused them to reject him. But I think this familiarity and pride touches on this issue in another way. If we think about how, how to apply this, it's actually the manifestation, the display of God's wisdom that weak and ordinary and familiar men are the very messengers that he sends to proclaim his gospel. Like their master... Men who are called to preach the gospel have nothing special about them. There may be gifts of one measure or another, but, but ultimately, we are men and only men, and men at best. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul deals with this very application as he contemplates the gospel, as he meditates upon how the gospel goes forth he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to turn with you there to verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews 
and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's meditating upon the gospel, and he comes to this conclusion. He looks at himself. He looks at the other preachers of the gospel. He looks at those who've heard and believed the gospel and says, you know what, there's nothing special about any of us. Which one of us is wise? Which one of us is of noble birth? Which one of us is a ruler in this world? We're ordinary men. Frederick Bruner, commenting on this passage, says, Nazareth's mistake is not that it thinks Jesus human, but that it thinks that he is so human he cannot be Messiah. It is apparently Jesus' family that makes him offensive to the people, and to this day, it is still Jesus' family, his always all-too-human church, that is both his major means of reaching the world and the major obstacle to the world's reaching him. Isn't that true? How many times have we heard one of the foolish objections that comes when presented with the Scripture, with the Word of God, with the authority from heaven that you must repent, you must believe the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be saved, and people will respond with something about the church, something about God's people, something about the familiarity with Christians who perhaps have behaved themselves badly, or they behave themselves quite well and the world hates it. There's a familiarity. There's a pride. This is, these are ordinary people. I mean, they go on about God creating all things, that men are unique, that we didn't just simply evolve from the apes and from some primordial ooze. We go on about sin and righteousness and the glory of God to come. I think, what do these guys know? I mean, there's, there's just a man-made religion and man-made books and man-made texts and, and all those things. It's all too human. And they reject the living God. Perhaps you've tried to speak the truth of God's Word to someone and they rejected you because you're just too familiar. How dare you? I, I know what you used to do. I know who you used to be and you're going to speak to me about sin? about righteousness, about holiness? No, thank you. This ought to encourage us, brothers and sisters, when we face obstacles, especially obstacles in evangelizing our own family. 
we will not be the first prophet without honor in his own hometown. I know I've experienced this even firsthand. When I was ordained as an elder some 16 years ago, men that I had been friends with, had lunch together every week, shared life together, exhorted one another, sought to hold each other accountable to the Word of God. It was just a, a normal, regular part of our friendship. But when I was ordained as an elder and began to preach, suddenly a couple of these men became offended that I would dare to exhort them in these ways. Because I was just an ordinary guy. And they were right about that. But it wasn't my own words that I was speaking. J.C. Ryle so there's nothing in all this that should surprise us. You know, this pride, this familiarity shouldn't come as a surprise. He goes on, the same thing is going on around us every day in our own land. Now remember, he's writing in the 19th century in England. He says, the same thing is going on around us every day in our own land. The Holy Scriptures, the preaching of the gospel, the public ordinances of religion, the abundance of churches that our country enjoys are continually undervalued by English people. They are so accustomed to them that they do not know their privileges. It is a solemn truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. And we could say the same thing in America. We could say the same thing in Texas. We could say the same thing in Montgomery County. There are churches everywhere. It's hard, it's hard to meet someone... It's not impossible, and it's beginning easier, but it's hard to meet someone who doesn't understand, has never heard anything about the Bible, who doesn't know anything about the gospel. But it's all too familiar. It's too familiar. You know, this can happen in homes too, can't it? Perhaps dad or, or mom speaks the truth of the word, and a child rejects it because it's coming from a too familiar source. Familiarity and pride. Young people, has this happened to you? Your dad admonishes you. Son, you need to be self-controlled. You need to maintain control of your temper. And you think to yourself, <laughs> I've seen dad lose it. Why would I listen to him? Or maybe... Your mom urges you to, to guard your words, to speak more kindly. And you think to yourself, <laughs> it was just last week that she said some uncharitable things to me. And because of your own familiarity and your own pride, you reject what she says. You don't listen because you've seen your own parents angry. You've seen them unkind. And you reject the word of God because it comes from someone who's too familiar. In your own pride, you reject the word of life. You, you reject a biblical exhortation or admonition because you see another's faults. But this can happen the other way around too, can't it? This can happen the other way around. The pastor who refuses to accept criticism from a church member 
because they're too familiar. The parent who refuses to accept a criticism from a child, who said, who are you to correct me? Familiarity and pride. See, it's not just they and them, is it? We like pronouns these days. It's not just they and them. It's we and us, right? It's you and me that can, can so easily fall into this trap of our own pride, our own familiarity with something, and then we, we find ourselves rejecting the Word of God. Have you ever had someone attempt to speak the truth of the Word of God to you? And your own flesh, your own pride rises up, and you think, who are you to tell me that? Not considering, is what they said true? You'll get a source. I won't listen to that person say that to me. Saints, our enemy is deceptive. And and the sin that dwells within us is a co-conspirator. It's a co-conspirator with us. We, We too will seek and we will find ways to reject the authority of God's word. And often we will find a way to reject it because the word of God happens to be delivered to us by a weak and sinful brother or sister. And we look at the source, the hu- humanly speaking, we look at the messenger and say, well, that messenger is flawed, therefore I don't have to obey. So there are two things that were obvious to the Nazarene crowd, the works and the words of Christ. There were two things over which they stumbled, familiarity and pride. And this leads us to see in the last place Two different responses. Two different responses to Jesus. Verse 4, Jesus says to them, and he's, he's quoting a familiar proverb, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he went out among the villages teaching. So there were two responses, two and only two responses, belief and unbelief. There were not three responses or six responses or 20 different responses. There were not different nuanced positions, only two. They either exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, looked upon this one who grew up among them in Nazareth and said, this is the long-awaited Messiah, or they rejected him. There was no other option. There are only two possible responses. And Mark tells us that Jesus did not do many mighty works there. And this is a very interesting statement. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. Unbelief, of course, does not paralyze God. Unbelief does not render God impotent to save. But but unbelief does deny the opportunity for human beings to experience the mighty work of God. In that way, unbelief absolutely hinders God. Mark tells us in his account that some did believe. According to Mark, Jesus did not do many mighty works there, 
except for a few who had their diseases, their sicknesses healed. And you know, this is the very last time in the New Testament, last time in the Gospels that we see Jesus teaching in a synagogue. And I wonder, is it because this, is, this marks the unbelief of Israel? And he, he went on from there to broaden his ministry to include even the Gentiles. The frequent pattern of his ministry was set aside because of unbelief. His frequent pattern of going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day was set aside. And again, this becomes a, a sense of a case study, a microcosm of all of Israel. Friends, do not allow the familiarity with Jesus, your own stubborn pride to hinder you from falling before him in worship and submission. J.C. Ryle again said, there is comfort in this part of our Lord's experience for some of the Lord's people. There is comfort for faithful ministers of the gospel who are cast down by the unbelief of their parishioners or regular hearers. There is comfort for true Christians who stand alone in their families and see all around them a cleaving to the world. Let both remember that they are drinking the same cup as their beloved master. Let them remember that he too was despised most by those who knew him best. Let them learn that the utmost consistency of conduct will not make others adopt their views and opinions any more than it did the people of Nazareth. Let them know that the sorrowful words of their Lord will generally be fulfilled in the experience of his servants. A prophet is not without honor, except in his own, in his own hometown and among his own relatives and among his own household. So saints, if you have been discouraged because you've sought to minister in good faith to your family, to your parents, to your brothers and sisters, to your cousins, to your aunts, your uncles, your nephews, and you have been rejected, take heart, you're walking in the same steps your master walked. To use Ryle's words, you're drinking the same cup he drank. This is in some ways to be expected. And Mark's gospel is concerned to put before us this question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he? Now, he gives us a decisive answer from the very first verse of his gospel. He is the Son of God. But then he, he doesn't want us just to simply take his word for it. He, he's showing us. He's giving us all the evidence. Friends, don't allow the familiarity that we have with the gospel with the scriptures, with church in general, to hinder you from setting your faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't allow your stubborn pride to stand between you and eternity. One of the things we see here and even Jesus' response tells us this, that unbelief is, is remarkable in its stupidity. It is. It, it is it, Jesus is astonished. He's marveled by that. There are only two places 
in the Scriptures where the Son of God is said to have marveled. There are two places. One is here, and he marveled at someone's unbelief. The other is when he encountered a centurion, a pagan soldier whose daughter was sick. And he came to Jesus and said, you don't even have to come to my house. I am a man who has authority, and I speak, and a man goes here or there according to my command. I know that if you will just speak, my daughter will be well. And we're told Jesus marveled at his faith. He said, I tell you the truth, this kind of faith has not been found in all of Israel. This decisive issue of believing or unbelieving, of faith or rejection, is, is the decisive one for all of eternity. And Jesus marvels here at their unbelief. Even the second person of the Trinity. He's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. But he marvels. The stubbornness. The pride. The stupidity of unbelief. With all the evidence there in our world, to look out at the world around us, to look at the heavens, to look through a microscope or a telescope and to see the evidence of, of God, to see His goodness and His mercy and His justice laid out before us, the heavens declare the majesty and the glory and the dominion of God. And then to have the Word of God that testifies to us who He is, how we can be reconciled to Him, and to see the testimonies, the eyewitness accounts of His words and works and then to reject that. And to say, I have a better plan. I have a better way. I have a better idea. What this text puts before us is the absolute danger, the absolute peril of unbelief. See, we can think about our own lives, we can think about the world around us, and... and enumerate all manner of sin and wickedness and evil. I mean, if I had a whiteboard, we could just brainstorm and list out all different kinds of sins. We could set up 10 categories, just hypothetically 10 categories, and, and articulate sins, couldn't we? Think about God's first covenant dealings with his people after he led them out of Egypt. He led them across the Red Sea on dry ground. And you remember? They were hardly even on the other side when they're moaning and complaining. We have nothing to eat. Back when we had meat in the pots in Egypt, wasn't that great? Their memories failed them already. Oh, we're thirsty. Moses, you just let us out here to die of thirst. They were idolaters. They were sexually immoral. They were blasphemers. They grumbled against God. They were angry with one another. They lied and cheated and all these kinds of things. But you know the one sin, the one sin that kept them out of the promised land? It wasn't all the sins that we could name up and write on the board. It was one. In Hebrews chapter 3, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. There is truly one, one sin, one sin 
that will keep a man, that will keep a woman, that will keep a boy or a girl from being reconciled to God. It is the sin of unbelief. All other sins can be pardoned. All other sins will be washed away if you will only believe. Embrace Jesus of Nazareth. Believe in him today. Hear his word of life offered freely to you. You probably would be hard-pressed to go to a large public gathering, a sporting event, without seeing, if there's any kind of signs displayed anywhere, you're going to see John 3.16, aren't you? For God so loved the world. Even unbelievers can largely quote it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But it ordinarily stops there, doesn't it? And we need to press forward. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see how in Nazareth that got flipped upside down. He came in not to condemn them, and they condemned him. And that's what unbelief is, isn't it? Unbelief ultimately is a condemning of God. Saying, I will not believe, I will not accept, I will not trust, I am condemning him. John 3 continues, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, or better, this is the verdict. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices, everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Dear friends, the scriptures compel you. The scriptures demand of you. The scriptures command you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the verdict. This is the heavenly decree that men believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. They reject that because their sins, their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed. But here is something truly miraculous, merciful, gentle about our Savior. The expectation is not that you will immediately comprehend all things. Not that you will immediately grasp and profess all things that are true. The Scriptures say if you will confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, you will be saved. If you will believe that God has raised him from the dead according to the Scriptures, you will be saved. Scriptures can say, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. 
And the mercy and the gentleness of our Savior is displayed in the fact that once you've confessed that, He pours His Spirit into you, leading you by His Word and Spirit into all truth. So for the unbeliever, please listen to me. Don't think to yourself, there's a lot more I need to sort out. There's a lot more that I need to understand. There's a lot more that I need to study and explore before I put my faith in Christ. Do not wait. Do not say to yourself, tomorrow will do. Do not say to yourself, next month will suffice. Today is the day of salvation. May there be an urgency to say, I need to believe these things. And trust, part of that believing is trusting that God will work in me to help resolve these other questions that I have. But to the believer, brother and sister, hear this too. Because each one of us, whether you've walked with Christ for a week or so or for 50 years, there are times when your faith is weak. There are times when you struggle to believe. Is it not the truth? Your Savior, your Redeemer, shows His mercy to you by providing you, number one, the means of increasing your faith, of causing your faith to grow. The fact that you're here today, submitting yourself to the preaching of the Word, of lifting up your prayers along with God's people, singing the hymns that, 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 of the faith that, that stir up a joy and a contentment in your soul, the fact that you will have opportunity to partake in the body and the blood of our Lord through the supper. These are means that God has given to us for increasing our faith. And I dare say it ought to be one of the most important prayers that we pray for ourselves and for one another, that God would increase our faith that God would magnify, as it were, our believing. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Brother and sister, when, when you find your faith failing, when you find your faith weak, when you find it hard to believe, confess that to God. He will not despise you. He is not offended at you. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. He says, come. I will stir up that which is good in you. Confess your weakness. Confess your struggle. And sometimes we, we think that God will help us with the struggle once we have believed. But we have it backwards, don't we? God will help us with the believing. We think that the burden of believing is all on our shoulders, and sometimes we think that if we could just handle that part, then God will do the rest. Friends, He helps us with our unbelief also if we will humble ourselves and ask Him. So the exhortation is to devote yourself. Devote yourself to the means that God has given to you. Do not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some. But all the more, as you see the day approaching, exhort one another to love and good works. He is our perfect high priest. He knows your weakness. And I think the tragedy of Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, how gently, how tenderly, how graciously would Jesus have received anyone in Nazareth 
has said, I want to believe. I'm struggling. I want to obey you. I want to follow you. Here's the place of my struggle. He would have received them eagerly, quickly. If you will humble yourself, your reward will be great. Every day for eternity, this blessing of communion with God is yours. You will never exhaust his mercy. You will never see the end of his glory. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord give us grace to meditate upon this passage, to really think carefully about the two things that we observe with Christ, the two things that were unmistakable, his words, his works. Unmistakable. Undeniable. And yet, that twofold trap, the twofold way in which the gospel ends up being scandalized sometimes in our own heart, our own pride, our own familiarity with these things. And lastly, let's not fall into the trap in our thinking that there is some middle way. There is never, ever a third way. It is faith in Christ or rejection of God. There's no middle way. It is belief in the gospel promises or unbelief. That is it. And may, we, may our prayers be shaped by that reality as we think about one another, as we think about our neighbors, our family members, our children. May we, may we be shaped by that reality. May we be patient with them all and yet faithful in proclaiming this gospel that only Jesus can save and salvation comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth of all places. Let's pray together. Our God, our Father, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. Oh, Lord, forgive the hardness of our hearts. Forgive the, the, the ways in which we seek to undermine the authority of your word where our, our own pride, our own familiarity, even our familiarity with certain parts of your word that just seem so ordinary to us, we pass over them and we don't stop to think about what you require of us, what you have done for us. Lord, be merciful to us. Help us to meditate upon your word. Help us to understand the severity, the, the, the danger of unbelief. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you will work in us and among us to stir up faith in us, to increase our faith, that we might walk before you in righteousness and holiness. We ask this for Christ's namesake. Amen.